people think tolerance is, is that I have to conform in order to be loved. Yeah. When the reality is that I don't need to fit in in order to be loved. I don't have to change anything about myself in order to be loved. Welcome to Own the Future, a podcast made by and for changemakers, where we gain the courage to own our story, the freedom to own our craft, and the power to own the future. My name is Lucas. I am your host. And today we have a dear friend and brilliant guest from Washington, D.C., Brandon Polk. And we are going to be talking about healthy psychology, identity politics, Palestine, justice, creating your world, and what tolerance really is. Thank you for being here, and let's get into today's episode. Are you familiar with Jordan Peterson? Oh, yeah, I love Jordan Peterson. I've just recently discovered him. Oh, he's amazing. It's a breath of fresh air. Yeah, it's healthy psychology for sure. Um, and I like to yeah. call it that healthy psychology <laughs> as opposed to a, a psychology that's derivated from scarcity. It's very empowering for the individual um, and provides choices for our reaction to any amount of trauma that you could be going through, you know. Can, can you unpack that a little bit more? Yeah, I think that so. For instance, you know, Jordan, Jordan Peterson talking about sexuality and the trigger for sexuality is, um, you know, because he's very much on, I think, sort of the side B side of the conversation on sexuality in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. Starts to sort of describe that decision point where a person is triggered as, um, as an opportunity through vulnerability to get to a, to a place where you feel connected and then you don't actually act out of the temptation or act out of the um, feeling of scarcity. But he says, when hmm. we actually do, it's when there's no viable place to put the connection, right? So if there's a hunger and a longing that's being triggered by any set of circumstances, then, then, then the person can end up acting out you know, and it's not just sexuality, but addiction, you know, then a person ends up acting out their like addiction, um, as a result of, of not being able to come to this place of strong connection where they feel, um, uh, like, like there's a place for them to be real and just honest. So fundamentally what he's saying is you have to go through the pain to get to the breakthrough. That's basically what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes, which I, he, it's all about embracing responsibility, embracing suffering, embracing the darkness within, if you will, to come out to a place of health and whole, wholeness. Yes, that is right. It is yeah. totally about like embracing darkness and recognizing that light is only perceived as light where there's shadow, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's, so, that's so true. You know? Um, otherwise it's just daytime. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I, what I especially like about him, it's, it seems like it's a pushback and I think he even says it, it's a pushback against the, the current kind of dialogue of freedom and self-empowerment and, uh, building up your self-esteem and absolute freedom you know, this pursuit of happiness. And it seems like he's going to the other direction that says, no, actually we're built for purpose and purpose comes from taking on responsibility. And it's not just a light responsibility, but what is the the malevolence in the world that you can take on? What is the deepest darkness in the world that you can face? And it's in the voluntary... Uh, taking that on as your purpose to overcome in in the world, that that's where you find your purpose in that hardship, in that struggle. Yeah, I think that's totally true. I know we're so getting off track here, but I love talking about this. So no, I think this is on track. track. This is this is perfect. Great, great. So we'll just keep going. But <laughs> but I think um, that's totally right. And and if we look at sort of our mainline examples of heroism, like mm. I talk about Superman a lot when I'm 
sort of writing and things like that. You know, like Superman was a hero. Spider-Man was a hero to me. Like I loved, sure. I loved what they could do. I loved the Spidey web and I loved the, um, the like invincibility of Superman. But as I got older, I really recognized, you know, that the real, um, thing that was attracting me to them was the vulnerability, the honesty of having to embrace the humanity of who they were as Peter mm. Parker or Clark Kent paired with this tension of having these special abilities forced them to embrace the darkness of who they were as people, the imperfections of who they were as human specimens. Mm. And in that darkness, finding um, this choice to either be people who sought power and from that power control versus the converse of that, which was courage to stay human, to love people that they weren't sure they'd be able to save if they had to choose either Lois Lane over, you know, keeping a building from falling you know, halfway across the world, then that was a choice that not Superman could make. It was a choice that Clark Kent had to make, even though he was clothed in Superman, right? It's fascinating because with within that, for Superman, for instance, is he going to save Lois Lane or is he going to save a building halfway around the world? It's, you know, he's he's screwed either way. Right. Even, in, even us as, a, as humans would look at him and be like, how... That's great that you saved, you know, a thousand people in that building, but you let the one that you love die. Exactly. It, right. But that it, in so many ways, that's the tension of the world that we live in. Right. I think it's exactly the, the tension of what it means to be in sort of these frustrated places of leadership around the world, mm. whether you're a world leader or whether you are you know, in government or an influencer of any sort really is recognizing that though you may have an opinion or you may have a place of influence in your position, that we are not capable of saving everyone at Mm. any given time. Not only because of lack of awareness, (laughs) but because we're not meant to carry this messianic role um, on one person, like ultimately what it will take to bring up, bring about some measure of change and, and fundamental growth in the realm of social issues or, or um, feminist issues or any number of social issues around the globe is every person and every community um, recognizing that there is an element of influence and power within them to make change. Mm. And yet what I find that what we've been teaching, whether it's through social media or even in our own communities, depending on where you are, is that it's necessary to abdicate our inerrant personal responsibility or community responsibility to systems, governmental systems, or other macro systems, even if they're just social systems, <laughs> you know, that are invisible. Um, they're just yeah. like, a, like um, kind of systems of opinion, um, uh, you know, we, we, we just kind of let these other folks kind of take on what is fundamentally our role as human beings to help within our sphere, whatever that sphere is. Um, uh, why do we, why, why as humans do we do that? Well, why do we, why, why do we like so much to abdicate our personal responsibility and then try to pass the buck onto a system or onto a government or onto whatever system it might be. Yeah, I think that's one of the core questions, you know, that I keep wanting to explore for myself. If, if I were to take Brandon and say, Brandon, where have you done that in your life? I would say that as a, as a social worker, I lean heavily when I'm working in the field with a family or, you know, any type of person, I lean heavily on a system to be able to give me resources to be able to help that person. Um, If I were to look at Brandon personally in that situation and say, what is it that I can do? 
I'm not always as willing to say, hey, why don't you come sit at my table for dinner? But instead, mm. I'll connect you with a system that's subsidized by the government that's supposed to feed you and clothe you. So why mm. is it that I do that versus inviting someone to my table where I know I have room for that person? Well, is it part of it personal boundaries and realizing if you invited everyone to your table that you wouldn't be able to help everyone? I think that that you would you wouldn't be able, wouldn't be able to help anyone at all by help trying to help everyone at your table. Right, and I think that that's a lie that I definitely have told myself is that helping one person mm. means that I'm responsible for every person, and that if I set sort of this this um this integrity within myself to help my neighbor, then all of a sudden that means that the world's going to be looking to me, you know, to um, feed or clothe all of the homeless people in Washington, DC. When really it's just my right. responsibility to help the neighbor that's in front of me. But it sounds like, that's such a subtle it, lie. Right, it's like a lie that, that I feel like, Oh, well, and here's, here's the thing. It is a lie that I create <laughs> so that I can feed my disconnection from the discomfort of actually operating out of the character that I say I'm about. And why do I do that? It's really because there's an insecurity in me um, that I'm wanting to avoid not being able to do it well. I also don't want my life to be disrupted by someone who is not like me. And that is a... Mm real vulnerable statement. It's an honest statement about how I just don't want my life to be inconvenienced by another person who I did not make, yeah. who I did not um, uh, have anything to do with their situation or their condition. It's um, a confrontation to the judgmentalism that I have as a person towards another type of person. And that exists in me. And I know it exists in part of our general like psychology of humanity to look at other people and look down on them in order to retain some sense of status in our own lives so that we don't have to take responsibility for other people, you know, uh, or for the wow. conditions of our environments, the conditions of our communities. You know, I think we're just more, you know, like inclined <laughs> to separate um, so that we feel better about who we are as people. So we don't actually have to confront what's wrong with us. You know, what I hear you saying, and maybe you can help me understand this because you threw down like a huge piece of sirloin <laughs> steak and, uh, I'm trying to plow through it as fast as I can, but it's, it's a lot to, for me to take in. So what I hear you saying is that you are insulating yourself from from the outside because you're and you that insulation is a lie that you create of I can't help this one person in front of me because if I help them then I have to help everyone but that is so that you can maintain a sense of congruency within how you view yourself and how you view the character of who you are and it's a, a mechanism of self-preservation and in order to insulate yourself, you have to make those people on the outside other than or not your responsibility or different than you so that you can disassociate their humanity so that you don't feel the personal responsibility. Yeah, I think Is that that's right? totally right. And let me simplify it even again and say most human beings are going through an incredible amount of insecurity. We compare ourselves to one another so often in the in in world culture right it's true for me it eats my lunch Seriously? almost it's every crazy. day i have to fight against it every i had to fight like it's horrible yeah and all of our platforms you know social media platforms or even television or whatever it is totally yep. feeds that monster that eats your lunch right it's like he just yeah <laughs> totally and, does you know comparison is a real sickness you know that we have going on around the world now, you know, as, so as, as, you know, these venues of 
social media have really connected us in some way around the world. Um, they have not given us quali- qualitative connections, right? Where we actually know and understand one mm-hmm. another, where we're able to operate with deference, you know, um, where we look at yeah. one another and give each other the benefit of the doubt. But instead, it puts us yeah. in this place of competition. Um, and if we can't, and if we don't feel like we can compete with someone, then we'll look around to, to someone that's different and otherwise them, if we can, otherwise a particular type of person to reaffirm that they are less than me so that it helps put me on par with the person that I'm comparing myself with that I want to be like, right? So if I'm looking at a poor person, but I want to be like a famous person, then I'll look at a poor person and say, oh, I'm so much better than they are. And it helps get me a little bit closer to the ideal that's in me, that I feel that I want to be mm. like the Kardashians of the world or whatever it is, you know, that, <laughs> you know, um, if, if it yeah. gets me closer, like I have good clothes, but a homeless person or a poor person or a person from middle America or, or a lower class person, you know, in any other part of the world, you know, as it can be defined as lower class, um, I am better than that person because of X, Y, and Z reason. And the, the result of that is an emotional, though temporary up leveling sense of being more than mm. so that you can live your day to day without feeling like you have any responsibility um, for what's going on in, in the world around you or being able to appreciate with gratitude what you do have without looking um, you know, at, at some other sort of Instagram post of some person like an influencer or whatever it is and feel like you're not good enough. But that's what we're feeding yeah. is the sense of I already, are, I already feel like I'm not good enough and I need to somehow change that because it feels so it's so urgent for, for, for me to not feel that way that I would literally sacrifice another human being. I would otherwise them and make them and then look down on them, which is totally not aligned with my character at all. But I'm willing to mm. do that because that feeling of scarcity, that feeling of not enoughness is so strong that I'm willing to do that. Mm. And so here's a question probably phrased as a sentence, but I find this is like my own personal counseling session right okay. here. So uh, this is great. I'll send, I'll send, okay, I'll send you, you a it. bill or no, I'll, I'll get your invoice and I'll send you but a check as well. That's right. Um, <laughs> so, so what i as you were sharing that, I, what came up in me was realizing when I look at people on Instagram, for instance, who are in a similar space, I look at them who are above me, who are doing better than me. And I begin to probably in in a sense dehumanize or in a way say, oh, well, they got lucky or say, well, they have this advantage over me because of their network or because of the relationships that they have or their language ability um, or their social status. I, I can quickly try to tear the person who is above me that for all I know just works harder than I am and is more competent than I am and is more gifted than I am. And I begin to weave a narrative in my head that tear the deconstructs them in their world and kind of adds more support to my world so that I can feel better about myself. Is that the same thing that's going on just in the uh, reverse? Yeah, I think that's totally right. Yeah. I think it's the exact same thing, you know, um, and it's just a different manifestation you know yeah and it's how compar- comparison right. works, how comparison works you know to me to me this sounds like a microcosm of identity mm-hmm. politics like identity politics and if we look at politics not as necessarily being dirty by themselves yeah or, or by by itself so when you add identity to politics then what you're what, what, what we're basically saying is that I'm attaching my identity to a particular philosophy or ideology around politics. So if you're conservative or if you're progressive or whatever those things are, it's not just about what it used to be now, which is just this ethical performance of going into a room from from a particular perspective, still valuing a human being on the Mm -hmm. quote-unquote other side of the aisle. So we're not valuing people anymore. We're saying if you're not like me, then that means that you don't have the right 
character, the right values mm. as a human should have um, in order to be in a place of leadership to make decisions, mm-hmm. to even have the argument, right? So if, if, if I'm in, like I am so involved in American politics, right? So if I'm Republican and I say not only do I have a Republican ideology, but my entire I, the like identity, the way I live in the world mm-hmm. is attached to that philosophy that I won't have friends or engage with someone who thinks differently than me, then I am, then, then I am, um, I have such vitriol against the other mm. party, right? Yeah. And vice versa. So why does that happen? That happens because of the same measure of insecurity that we're talking about, right? Um, if, if, if I'm a conservative and I don't actually know what it means to be a conservative, <laughs> I actually don't know what conservative mm-hmm. ideology is, then I will go with the popular opinion of what it means to be conservative if it's what the cool right. kids do, right? If it feels cool to me to be a conservative, then I will be an outspoken person around conservative values without actually knowing what it means to be conservative mm-hmm. and to be human, <laughs> you know, to actually be shared human experience with someone right. who's progressive, right? So instead, I'm looking at them and saying, you are not like me. Not only are you not like me, but you have a diminished value. You're actually not even human, not because I know what it means to be human. I'm actually not even locked in to what it means to be human at all. I'm more locked in to what it means to be a conservative as it's being defined by me by media and popular politics. It's almost as if you have, you've lost your own identity as a distinct individual with your own thoughts and you're just going along with a system 100%. or a group think and you're letting this, the, the system or the, the identity that you identify with define who you are without your own individual consciousness, if you will. Yes. Definitely. And, you know, I think that there are so many reasons why that can happen for an individual um, Mm. or for a community. Um, You know, some of the things that come to mind, you know, are, you know, I I think in a way it gets back to the abdication of community and roles Mm. as philanthropic, you know, um, community organizations as being philanthropic for the community sphere, that volunteerism. Um, in this culture is not something that we do without getting right. paid for it. So in some in one, you know one shape, I mean? way, so shape or form or another, we say, hey. right. Cause it's not always getting right. paid for it in dollars. Right. It's yeah. prestige. 100%. Yeah. It's prestige, power and influence or opportunity to up level mm. my own life. Right, it's self-preservation. It is um, humanism, in a way that says, "Be out for yourself. Live your best mm. truth. <laughs> live your truth. Um, live your best life." Or YOLO, you only live once. Yeah. That kind of thing, right? But it's you, you, you. It's me, and it's not. So the why is we. why is often at least in the context that. I've heard in the channels that I listen to is identity politics tied with people feeling like they are a victim. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think that, and well, and not, I think that, that, that this is a brilliant question. <laughs> um, really because one has to ask the question, what is, what mm-hmm. does it mean to be a victim? How are you defined a victim? How do you come to the understanding yeah. of what it means to be victimized? You know, if, and I talk about this a lot, you know, what does it look like to be, uh, say, in American history, um, a descendant of, um, of a history of slavery? You know, 200, 400 years, you know, of, of slavery, of a system you know, that was institutionalized against a, a group of people yeah. because of the color of their skin. Absolutely. Right. Okay. There's some obvious Correct. victimization obvious. going on there, <laughs> right? That uh, right, super obvious that we know for the people that were dealing with it at the time. 
what seems to be constructed of, or, 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 or something that we're not so clear on holistically around the world when it comes to something like slavery is that if you're living today as a person that is black and, and brown or brown, that you are a victim today because of what happened 200 mm-hmm. or 400 years ago, right? That is something that is up for debate amongst the majority or amongst the patriarchy, as some people call it, or amongst the current power structure that is mostly older mm-hmm. white males who say, oh, I'm not a victim today. You can pick yourself up by your bootstraps and go on through life and you have the same opportunities as me because the Emancipation Proclamation, Civil Rights, all of these things happen to give you this equal opportunity, the same Mm -hmm. as me, without recognizing that equality is not the same thing as equity. And that in order to have true equality, one must also like really, really consider um, what does it mean to bring about equity um, in the context of a today generation as that generation has been impacted by 400, 500, 600 years of atrocity um, you know, that gives other people still a running start, you know, um, as it's compared, you know, to those who so, didn't. So here's a, you know? here's a, here's a question. So, and I feel like, I mean, Brandon, I think we've known each other for nine, almost 10 years. You're one of my dearest friends. So I feel like I can ask this question hmm. and it's a safe place. Um, so, so here's yes. the, here's okay. the issue that the struggle that I have is that the moment that you you spread the the microcosm of America just a little wider, you would find that all those people who are tied so closely to a rightful narrative of an factual narrative that they have been victimized, we find that they are also victimizers. So, so, so I don't understand. I think the area that I struggle with, with identity politics and a lot of the current American politics where it, it seems to be so polarized around these issues is the fact that I, I the question might be, is this narrative of victimization and is it helping people or is it just looking at a microcosm or realizing that they all have a cell phone, which means they're, they are, quote unquote, part of this uh, tyrannical patriarchy, which I don't believe in, uh, but they are a part of this tyrannical teri- uh, pa- uh, patriarchy that is oppressing millions of people in the Congo for cobalt or in China mm-hmm. for the people who are making mm-hmm. their phones and aren't making any money uh, or, you know, a dollar a day, two dollars a mm-hmm. day. So I that is the, the parody that that I see that it's present here in the Middle East. If you look at the Israel-Palestine conflict, uh, there's both sides. Mm -hmm. Both sides are claiming to be the victims and both sides are accusing the other side to be the victimizer um, in that conflict. And it it seems like it's not a helpful dialogue to have and that we need to move past the, the, the general... Um, identity politics, or just taking the 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 stance of the group, and as you talk so much about stopping and hearing the story of the individual, and hearing the narrative of the person mm-hmm. that's in front of you, and humanizing what we have now turned to be other. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. You know what I think is really interesting, different from American politics. In, in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and ideology is that it is a strongly held connection to yeah. identity, right? I mean, this is, and it's older yeah. than America. That's the, the thing, you know, that a lot of American politicians, you know, I think that sometimes you understand it, but does the American populace really understand that this conflict has gone on for mm-hmm. thousands of years? <laughs> you know, that this is, uh, you know, at, at its front and center, it is a belief that, that a certain piece of land is not just land, it is inheritance, it is legacy, and yeah. it is home. And 
a certain people hold that home and are occupying that space, keeping out or locking out people that have yeah. the rightful heir to it. Or if you're on the other side, we have claim to it and you're not allowed to have a kind of claim to the land that we're mm-hmm. in, right? So what what we're experiencing here is what I call sort of a postmodern right or a postmodern left point of view, um, which basically are the extremes of being left or being yeah. right. Um, these are leaders or they're people of, in, of uh, well, they're people of a, of a measured amount of influence or they're the general populace, right, that have ascribed to a to that kind of um, thought or ideology that says, like we were saying before, I can't get in a room with you if you're this right. far left. I don't want to have anything to do with you if you're that far left. I don't want anything to do with you. I can't stand mm. you. I'm anxious. I feel like I'm going to throw up if I'm in the room with you, if you're that mm. far right. And yet these are the people that have to get into a room if there's ever going to be any kind of significance in the policy change. Here's this. We can't even get to policy change if we can't get to like a place of relationship building that results in advocacy for a particular way of living yeah. or policy development. Right. And so how do you do that in the context of an age old, um, uh, sort of understanding mm. of ideology of, of, you know, that is opposing to another ideology. And is it possible? I think at the people level, mm-hmm. it's possible. And I think that there are examples of that, you know, um, as you're looking at uh, the Palestinians and Israelis, you know, really working together in a lot of different contexts yeah. and organizations, you know, nonprofits and NGOs to really get things done. So how do you elevate that to the level of policy, to the level of government? That's a question that if I'm being honest, mm. I don't have the answer to. Um, and after, you know, traveling to Israel, you know, my first time just in 2018 and going into Palestinian territory also, you know, for the first time, I have not um, been more challenged <laughs> around um, not being able to see a direct yeah, solution. It's so complex. Um, that brings people to the table. It's very, very complex. And um, the other thing that I'll add here, Lucas, that I think that is misunderstood, not thought about a lot, is generational mm-hmm. trauma for each particular group of people. And what is difficult, talk about victimization, or to your question, that the victimized become the victimizing, you know, um, be, become the, the people to actually do it, is that hurt people, yeah. hurt people, right? And hurt um, groups of people <laughs> develop ideologies that justify their actions to hurt another yeah. person, <laughs> even if it's just in, in the ideology, right? And um, or, which means that it then comes out in the rhetoric, it right. comes out in what you say. And then it comes in our behavior, you know, um, in psychology, we have this thing called the cognitive triangle. It's where your thoughts, um, lead to your feelings and then your feelings Mm. lead to behavior. And then your behaviors, um, are a reinforcement for what you thought (laughs) in the first place. Right. And so this happens at the individual level. As a therapist, I work to not just change a behavior, but first I Mm -hmm. start with the thought. I have to identify what the thought is that's driving a particular feeling and then a feeling that's driving a particular behavior. Um, so I, so once I've identified what that thought is, then I work really hard as a therapist to almost at a, at a repetitive, like very repetitive rate to introduce a new thought that is a healthier thought that um, through that repetition and the buy-in of the individual to practice that thought, generate a new positive, um, or rather healthy, not just positive, but healthy interaction in their feelings that generates a more healthy behavior, yeah. right? So how does that happen at the community level? 
How does it happen at the national level? How does it happen with, with people that are on the postmodern mm-hmm. left or the postmodern right? I have to then go in and say, through relationship building, we are confronting an unhealthy thought or yeah. thoughts by starting relationships where you're actually, you know what, this person that I met didn't fall into the stereotype of what I had of them in the first place just because of where I knew they came from. So through that, we get to generate another feeling and another emotion around what it means to value that person or that group Mm -hmm. of people as human beings. And that in turn generates the possibility for different behavior, for different ways of interacting with people that are different. And, um, so the question then is, is, is still how do you get people to the table and especially people that are policymakers, decision makers, or influencers mm-hmm. of some kind? Um, and if we're being honest, what is the threat against even coming into the room? It is the constituency right. that will yes. throw you or throw the leader it's out totally of their influence <laughs> if they come to the table. Right. Yeah. That's, to- that's totally what it is. So, I, I mean, this... I've, I've recently I've been thinking a lot about this, vic, like feeling like a victim, um, and maybe it's just starting to color my my worldview or the way I see things. But I see it in, um, especially in in America with the feminist movement, the alt left kind of feminist. I see it with uh, just so even here I see with so many different areas. And um, I, I'm just having a, just struggling personally, I think, struggling of how to put language to it where I'm, you know, respecting that person's narrative. I'm understanding that they, they are responding out of something that has been accepted either on an individual level, a generational level, or a society cultural level of, uh, not just perceived uh, victimization, but real victimization. In addition to the fact that the moment that you expand those borders just a little bit, these people who are claiming to be a victim are are in in making the top one percent or top yeah top one percent uh, income in the entire globe. Um, mm. and and so I feel like the the arguments of of some of the of the identity politics of this narrative of I'm a victim and I need to somehow oppress my oppressor or level the playing field with my oppressor in order to have a fair game. I feel like it 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 doesn't play out in the long run. And if what I'm hearing mm. you say is right, and please correct me because I. I don't have like a full stance on this. I'm trying to process through this. What I'm hearing you say is the way that that victim uh, identity or that victim mentality is broken down is through dialogue, is through building bridges and relationships with those people who you think are other than you. Yeah, yeah. And what's really essential to that process is finding people who can have buy-in, um, who will give buy-in to having a conversation with someone that's different. Now in this culture, that's becoming more the unicorn Mm. and it's becoming more of what, what I see as people that have gone through a measured amount of pain in their lives Mm -hmm. personally and have gravitated or have learned through some sort of spiritual, emotional, academic evolution that they're willing to be a part of the solution. And they're so willing um, that they're actually courageous enough <laughs> to go to the other side to make friends or to attempt to make friends, to sit in a room with people that are different, that are outside of their experience for the mm. common good. Now, those people are leaders in their own right even though they may not have a position in government, they may not have a position in a company or an organization, they may not be CEOs yet, but what they are is they are courageous people who have learned courage through personal struggle. Mm. And what they've done is they've created um, with, within them not only the courage to go to the other side, but then to come back to their own side and live courageously differently mm. 
to speak with honor, to speak with, um, with positivity, um, with nuance, um, but with integrity, how they've engaged the other while not compromising their values, while not compromising their mm. intentions, without compromising their principles, while also being flexible to say, I don't have all the answers and I'm going to get some mm. of the answers. I'm leaned in. And then those people end up becoming the grassroots and sometimes grass tops, depending on where they are in the culture. What I mean by grass tops is maybe they're business owners. Maybe they are the CEOs because they become the CEOs for social impact really out of the experience of building relationship with the other. Mm. Um, they really do become leaders who are impacting the decision makers in a particular country or institution or wherever that need is. It sounds like and, this is coming full circle to what we began talking about, which is that having to face the darkness within and realizing that as an individual, I am at fault, that an individual, mm -hmm. I, I am, a, a, in this case, I am a victimizer. As, as an individual, I have a certain level of uh, malevolence or selfishness or self-seeking motives, um, greed, mm -hmm. darkness, evil within me. And it's through the recognizing it within myself that I can come out as an empathetic person mm -hmm. and find mm -hmm. truth. Definitely. Is that what it is? And, and then I'm doing that on a, definitely. On a societal and level. Mm -hmm. Doing it at the societal level because we're doing it at the psychological level. Hmm. And at the human experience of our own psychology, we are living <laughs> as people who are desperately trying to avoid pain, <laughs> to avoid Isn't the reality the of our own circumstances. Yeah. I mean, desperately, desperately trying to avoid it. And the genesis of that avoidance, you know, um, comes out and so in many of us and, you know, in, in any number of different ways, right? So we become more polarizing, we otherize other people, because we're desperately, um, you know, seeking to avoid dis, dis discomfort and inconvenience in our mm. lives. But what happens when a person, just as you're saying, takes responsibility for the fact that they're not owed not feeling pain they're not owed not having gone through certain experiences or conditions from the time that they were born wherever they, so what if in the palestinian conflict and israeli conflict people actually started to say i'm not owed my experience being different than what it is hmm. i have no entitlement to not having gone through what i've gone through yeah however that doesn't mean that certain things aren't aren't worth a an execution of justice you know, right yeah but how we go about getting that justice um means everything if we are then to not become the victimizers <laughs> of our oppressors right and in some ways right? we're seeing that in, um, in south south africa right now Mm, mm, mm -hmm. Definitely. Where, where Definitely. The, the, the whites came in and they uh, oppressed the blacks. So they took the land away from them. And now uh, I, I'm horrible with South African history. The apartheid happened. And, but now they're seizing the land back um, and trying to mm -hmm. serve justice, essentially. I'm not an expert on the right. conflict at all. But. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, but this is what comes up in. In American politics, too, or in an American cultural understanding, you know, in the race conversation as it's related to reparations. Mm. Yeah. Right? And this, of course, is a subject in the Palestinian Israeli conflict also. Um, what's going on in South Africa, this is what it is. It's like, you owe this to me. <laughs> um, you were the oppressor for this number of hundreds of years, mm -hmm. whatever it is. Like, this is equity for you to give this back to me in reparations, right? Yeah. Now, there is something to restoration you know, um, for any hope of reconciliation, um, and even reconciliation for me is a dirty word because, um, and especially in, in the context of the, of the, um, American understanding of slavery, be, because the reconciliation as a word 
um, it it supposes that we were conciliatory at some point mm. <laughs> in mm. the history, right? Um, <laughs> reconciliation, you know, is going back to the point where you were consoled, right? right? <laughs> and but if um, you were never consoled to start with. We were never consiled to start with. So how can you go backwards to that? And that's part of the problem is that we use this terminology and what your word is creates the world that you live in. Mm. (laughs) You know, what your words are, how you talk about a thing actually does create your world of experience. It helps to create the perspective and the understanding to which we give ourselves permission to interact with one another, right? So if we say, can't we just go back (laughs) or rather what what people say is, can't we just move on? What you're really saying is, can't we all just be reconciled, mm. right? Can't we all just go back? But really, we can't go back because there is no amenable place in the in the past <laughs> from which you can so move true. forward from. <laughs> That's right? so true. And this is the same thing around the world, right? Like, where has there ever been a utopic experience where you can go backwards to a place where from fr- from which you can move forward from? In world history, yeah, never. Where, where does that place ever exist? It has never existed. So, what does that mean? It means that we have to begin through first through relationship, first through personal courage, and personal non-avoidance of our own pain, taking responsibility, then move forward to a place of of, of building relationships, reading books that were not meant for us, but meant for people that are not Mm. like us, right? To help understand that experience and then building relationships with those people intentionally and not just sitting in your ivory tower of community, whatever that might be that continues to isolate you from the other so so that you can continue to build a bubble around Mm. yourself and point the finger all the way outside and say, you're dirty, you're unclean, you're not right, you're, you're unrighteous, whatever it is. But doing the opposite of that and not bursting your bubble, but expanding your own bubble in order to reach into another person's experience so that you learn. And then, and then we actually start to understand that we have to create new words around that experience. We have to create new phrases that don't um, really contribute to to the stigma or to the rhetoric that is negative against the other person. We actually begin to honor Mm. the humanity of the other person while not not engaging with the philosophy Mm. that we don't agree in. There's a way to to move forward in the 65 or 70% that we agree on and leave the 30 and 35% that we don't agree on. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Right? Like, where it is. I think... Yeah, that's so true because going back to the words or how our words create the realities that we live in. And right now, a lot of the language, I think, at least in America, on both sides of the aisle is very much of one of entitlement. And Mm -hmm. with that, it it automatically polarizes and it makes you feel like a victim. It goes back to the comparison thing. Um, That and then the other thing that I found was really fascinating was how how whether the grassroots or the grass tops um, are afraid to cross the aisle because of the constituents. And I've, I've encountered there being a lot of fear and apprehension and choosing words in trying to have those, those dialogues, but not so because you're afraid to offend the other person, but you're afraid. I, I hear people afraid to step outside of their, their party rhetoric and being criticized from within their own party and being shunned from within mm-hmm. their own party of saying, no, 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 we don't think that. And then there's, you know, social consequences that they have to then backpedal on to make it back good within their own party. Is that true? Yeah, I think that's totally true. And I think you would feel that, you know, and be aware of that much more in the Middle Eastern experience than we would in the American or or, or in the Western experience. You know, I think that there's much more at stake for someone um, in the geopolitical realm, you know, in the Middle Eastern political realm in particular, to not only be criticized, but to be, you know, challenged yeah. in your own life, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, like, like you could live your life <laughs> for yeah. going against the majority constituency. Right. Yeah. It, and we have experienced that in, in, in the past in the West, but not as a cultural 
you know, thing, except, you know, for certain things that have come out and that have come out recently against, you know, our current administration, you know, where people feel, you know, quite free, you know, to make, um, you know, statements of violence, you know, against our, our leader, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I think one to that point, um, every year in the UAE, they have a, a different thematic year of the, uh, the Sheikh of Abu Dhabi, Sheikh Khalifa, and the Sheikh of Dubai, Sheikh Mohammed, they come together and they discuss and they decide uh, a theme for the year. And this year, the theme for the UAE is tolerance. And mm. they've, they've said it plays anti-discrimination laws, anti-hatred laws, and they're, they're actively working to build interfaith dialogue, to build tolerance across religion, tolerance across race, tolerance across um, different sects, different um, tribes, the, the whole nine yards. And I think it probably, to your point, it took a lot of courage and boldness uh, for the leaders of this country to stand up boldly and say, no, we are going to be a nation that is tolerant, that is accepting, that sits, mm. seeks to sit down and understand the narrative of other people and and fight against the the dogma and bigotry that that comes in blindly with uh, considering someone else other and dehumanizing their experience. Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. in closing, we have a couple minutes left. Can you give uh, a a quick breakdown on on uh, what it means to be tolerant, what tolerance is, and then finally a a single takeaway of how can you you not just exercise tolerance this week, but what's an an action step to really begin a, a dialogue and a conversation with people who aren't are not like you? It's awesome. Um, well, I can tell you before I tell you what tolerance is, <laughs> I can tell you what tolerance is not. <laughs> um, tolerance is not making other people compliant to your understanding of the world or your preferred, um, understanding of how they should live, of how the other mm. should live or what their status should be. Mm. Um, even if you communicate it in kindness as a conservative or liberal ideology, mm. right? So you can say, we believe in, um, in more conservative government, you know, um, or more fiscally responsible government. Um, how you believe people should live or exercise that, you cannot control. That is not tolerance. That is compliance. That is, that is um, trying, to legisla- trying to legislate a sense of conformity, um, whether it's through government or through community um, or whatever, Thing you might be a part of. Sometimes we do that in family. Um, you know, we actually say, you know what, you can't be a part of our family if you believe X, Y, and Z thing, yeah. or if you behave in a certain kind of way, right? Yeah. And so what we're preferencing there is not the person, but we're actually showing preference for the person being valuable only if they conform mm. to what you want, only if they're compliant to what you say they have to do, to who you say they have to be. Because my experience um, yeah. of my experience of tolerance in America, at least, it's it, it's more like putting up with. It's like it's like I'll let you believe that, but we don't have any relationship. I'll tolerate you, but really, I have a a, a low level of hatred for you. That's when I hear mm-hmm. the word tolerance in the Western context. That's what I yes. hear. But you're yes. saying that that is not tolerance at all. That is that is not tolerance. So what is tolerance then? Um, I'm giving my own definition of it. So, <laughs> um, being tolerant does not demand that people not have their own set of principles mm-hmm. or that people do not have self-determination, um, or free will and how they decide to live their lives. Um, what tolerance is, is the capacity. It is the behavior um, for allowing people to have self-determination in how they choose to live and what they choose to believe while still, while still allowing and understanding that there is a fundamental value in the humanity of another person Mm. that must be respected and honored. Tolerance is listening without judging the character of a person while still having space to dissect 
criticize in a healthy way or even be skeptical in a healthy way of a particular ideology, right? And, or a particular way of living. Um, so to summarize that, I don't, in, in my judgment of another person, I don't ever bring them closer to me. Mm. In my kindness with another person, not only do I engage them relationally, but I also increase the opportunity of being able to not only be changed, but to change, but to see them change also through that kindness. That is, that is tolerance. Tolerance is not disengagement. It is engagement of the human being at the psychological level, at the emotional level, at the, even at the academic level, at the intelligence level right? Um, to fully be curious and understand what's going on in another person, community, or entity without sacrificing my own values. This is what people think tolerance is, is that I have to conform in order to be loved. Yeah. When the reality is that I don't need to fit in in order to be loved. I don't have to change anything about myself in order to be loved. I should belong as a part of the human experience, belong with humans. <laughs> yeah. And I can be different, right? So... Yeah, so that's just my thought about how tolerance can like be that. like that, the actual posture of what tolerance is um, and how it can be lived and felt. So how do you practice tolerance? How do you go out into the world and do that? I would say one is, of course, giving space for people to have free will, listen more, talk less. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's ask so more simple, questions. huh? It's so simple, right? It's ask more questions. Learn how to ask questions about what a person is saying. Don't just mm. say, oh, that's great what you said. No, ask more questions because on the other side, people don't know what you don't know about what they said. Um, and you don't know what they're not, you know, uh, that they fully understand and, 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 they're, um, and they're communicating about their experience. They don't know what you don't understand about their experience. So you have to clarify, seek clarity, seek understanding, be investigative, be curious about the whole of a person, about the whole of a community. Um, um, I say this all the time, read books that weren't written for you, mm. you know, um, um, talk to people, go out and intentionally talk to people that aren't like you. Some people have the ability and will have the ability um, as a part of the majority to avoid people that aren't like them. It's the minority that can't avoid the majority. The majority can always avoid the minority, yeah. just depending on where you live and what your experience is, right? Yeah. Um, so, and even then, it's, it's, it is the responsibility of all parties, you know, to sort of look at each other with, with, um, with, uh, with deference and with love just at the human level. If you can't do anything else, you can respect that a person was born and that you were brought into this world um, without your permission mm. <laughs> and they were brought into this world without their permission. Mm. And, and just at that shared fact, you can build a level of understanding and grace and love, you know, if you choose to. Mm. Um, so there's that. There's like intentionally engaging, reading books that weren't written for you, listening more. And I think the posture still is, and this has to be practiced, that, that the posture also has, has, has to be practiced, is that I cannot control another person. When I am trying to control, Gosh, I'm so operating true. out of fear and not love, right? Um, if I'm operating out of love, people have the space to go on their own journey I can ask questions, but I don't have to be defensive. But instead, I can say, you know what, baby, I think you're great. <laughs> I love you. I want you to live and go on this journey. Go on this journey. And guess what? I'm with you in that journey. And this is what I think from my end about this thing that you're going through in life. I believe mm. this. this is how I, these are what my principles are. I'm not projecting those principles onto you. But what do you think about this? Does this offend mm. you? Does this hurt you? right? Does this offend you that I'm pro fill in the blank? <laughs> what does it mean for me to be pro fill in the blank? Does it mean that I'm con you because I'm pro this? Let's actually yeah. unpack that when really what yeah. I'm saying is that I'm in, I'm in the room and I'm at the table with you out of a place of love and I'm not leaving that table. Will you stay at the table with me? That's an important question. I think that's yeah. cl clarifying those things. If I'm pro something, does that mean I'm con you or con something else. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, yeah, that articulation and that, that challenge is, is an important one and it's, it's fundamental and simple in its, 
in its truth and application in in a daily life. Yes, uh, definitely. Brandon, definitely. thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for your time today. Where can people find you? Uh, gosh, people can find me. So my website is arrowheadadvising.com. My um, Instagram handle is Brandon Polk, B-R-A-N-D-E-N-P-O-L-K. You can find me there. Um, I also have a podcast uh, with a buddy of mine called Behind the Scene, but Behind the S-E-E-N, and where uh-huh. we work on uncover racial bias. Um, there's so many ways you can find me, but just look for my name, Brandon, B-R-A-N-D-E-N-P-O-L-K, and um, and uh, and if you have questions, you can reach out to me at, at any one of those places on Instagram or through the website. Brandon, thank you so much for your time. All your info you. is in the show notes. Guys, follow Brandon, check him out. I listen to his podcast and I always walk away feeling uncomfortable about my own self <laughs> and <laughs> the thoughts that lie deep within. And so thank you again so much for listening thank to the you. show. And Brandon, thank you for your wisdom and your time and your your okay. tolerance with my ignorance. <laughs> I love you, my friend, forever and ever. We're, we're in it together. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. It means so much to me that you are here with me and that we got to share this time together. Please share this. Speaking of sharing, share this with a friend who needs to hear today and stay tuned for next week's episode where we talk about the tortoise and the hare, why the tortoise actually wins and how to level up your craft. The things that you, the thing that you need to do to move your craft from the place of almost great to exceptional and world-class. Until the next time that we're together, I'm Lucas Scrobot, and remember, if you own your story, you'll own the future.